Amen. Okay, as many of you people know here, uh, we as a little family have been involved with adoption services for the past couple of years. Uh, and as part of, of that, we were, you're constantly given lots of assigned reading to do. Uh, and many of that reading uh, is, much of that reading is, is case studies that you have to sort of understand other people's experience uh, in all of this. Uh, and one of, a not uncommon story a not uncommon story uh, as you read through some of these case studies uh, of children who've been adopted um, is the story of Elsa. That's her true name. Um, I've changed that to protect the innocent here. Uh, Elsa grew up uh, in a family, a little family, where she experienced real heartbreaking neglect. Her mum would leave her uh, from ever since she was a toddler, a small toddler, her mum would leave her for hours at a time on, in the flat on her own. Uh, she would have to find her own food uh, she, by the time she was two. Uh, and she was starved, not just of food, but starved of care and affection. Uh, social services came to hear about her case and she was taken into care. Uh, and after she uh, had a number of foster care placements, finally, around the age of five, she was adopted uh, by a family. And in this case, she found a new home. Uh, she found a, a place in a new f- and part of a new family. She had new parents uh, who loved uh, and cared for her on a, in a consistent way. And yet... Her adoptive parents found it very, very difficult for when Elsa arrived. Uh, They had all sorts of behavioral problems to deal with, all sorts of anger management issues uh, to be patient with her uh, through. Uh, When she went to school, uh, she found it quite difficult at school. And reports came back to her new adoptive parents that uh, she was disruptive in class. She couldn't work with her fellow pupils she couldn't share uh, and was stealing. Uh, she was stealing little items from her, from her other pupils. And especially in the canteen was stealing and storing food. And you can understand the psychology there, can't you? Um, she was lashing out at, at other pupils um, when she didn't get her own way. But over a few years as her parents patiently, consistently provided for all her needs, as they consistently loved her and cared for her and assured her that her home was a forever family, um, she began to change. And so now, age 10, little Elsa's doing really well at school. Uh, She has learned how to socialize well, to make and sustain a friendship. She's learned to share Uh, And she's doing really well. You see, the reality is, the reality is, the way you are loved affects the way you love others. The way you are loved affects the way you love other people. And it's true not just for Elsa, but of course it's true for us. It's true for us. Uh, The way you're loved If you're not feeling accepted and welcomed and loved and nourished and encouraged, then that has a profound effect on your behavior towards other people. 
it has a profound effect uh, on whether you're mean or not, whether you're brash or not, whether you're fearful or not, whether you're timid or not. The way you're loved affects how you love other people. It's true for Elsa, uh, and it's true for the rest of us. And that's really what John is getting at in this little section. I think a key verse for us is actually verse 19. We love, we love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. If you understand that you are truly loved, uh, accepted, secure, have a permanent place in God's family that he's committed to you, then that will inevitably affect how you treat other people and how you love other people. That is the logic uh, of this chapter. And I want to try and guide us through uh, the logic of this chapter this, this morning. But uh, a little bit of background for those of you who are guests, maybe haven't been here. Um, John is writing for a particular purpose. He's writing to Christians who are unsettled. Uh, we've, been, we've been learning that um, a big group uh, of folks within this church that John's writing to have up and left. Um, they have started a new group Uh, And they're speaking to the remainers, those who stay in their old church. They're saying things like, we have now deeper insight. We now have direct revelation from God. We have wonderful new experiences um, from the spiritual, uh, in our spiritual lives. uh, And we uh, have a more sophisticated, broader uh, spirituality. And those uh, remainers who are hearing that uh, have become a bit unsettled, a bit worried. Maybe we are missing out. Maybe we should join this other group. They seem to be having exciting things happening there. Maybe we should join them. Uh, And John then writes this letter. John then writes this letter. And he's writing for the purpose of reassuring them. Reassuring them. No, you have everything you need You are really loved by God. You are really forgiven. You really belong to him. Don't go anywhere. Don't go anywhere. And John uh, has a particular strategy that he's using um, to encourage them. What he's done is he reminds them of things that, uh, pieces of evidence, things that he's spotted in them, pieces of evidence that he's spotted in them uh, that proves they're the genuine article, the real McCoy. Uh, and there's really three, three themes that he brings up again. Look, you guys have believed the truth about Jesus. you believed the truth about Jesus. You've come to understand that he was an historical man who was also God who died for you. Don't you believe that? You do? Great. That's a sure sign that you're a Christian, one of God's people. Uh, second, they're the way they behave. Look, you want to obey what God has told you to obey. You, you're, you don't feel it's, you're free to ignore what Jesus says. Great. That's a sure piece of evidence that you're a genuine Christian. And then thirdly, they're belonging. They are attempting, trying their best to love others in their Christian family. They're not doing it perfectly, but they're making a genuine effort to love, care, and serve those uh, who are around them in their church family, as opposed to this other group who are clearly despising their previous church family and what they were taught. 
Uh, and John goes around these themes, theme, three themes effectively three times in the letter. Um, in uh, chapter 1, verse 5 through to 2, verse 28, he goes through these three themes in, in this first cycle. Uh, and then in chapter 2, 29 to 4, verse 6, he goes through all three of them again. And now we start to go through the final cycle where he touches on all three themes one last time. So if you've been here for the past few weeks, all of this should sound quite familiar. Uh, You've heard it before. But nevertheless, I do think that he adds a new angle, uh, a new perspective uh, each time. So it is worth slowing down uh, to consider what he has said. And the theme of this little section that we're looking at, uh, that Eddie read for us from chapter 4, verse 7, through to the end of the chapter, is clearly on the theme of belonging, love for God and for one another. Um. And in many ways, this is the supreme chapter in the Bible on love. Many of you think, oh, that's there's the chapter in the Bible in love. That's 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, but actually, the word love is used more times in this little section than anywhere else in the Bible. Um, and so this is the supreme little section on love. And it's, it's well loved uh, by many Christians. Um, and what I want to do is I want to consider the three steps... Uh, of John's argument uh, in this little section. Uh, I want us to look at the origin of love, the demonstration of love, and then the completion of love, and how each one of those inspires us, when we understand them properly, inspires us to love God more and to persevere in loving each other more. Okay, let me show you how John makes these points first. Uh, The origin of love, the origin of love. Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And so he begins by telling us what, where love comes from, where love comes from. It comes from God because God is love. Love, God is love. Now, it's not just that God, that's one of God's activities. One of the things God does is that he loves. John is saying something more than that. He's saying not only that God often loves, but he's saying that God is essentially love. He is love. Um, What does that mean? Well, let me try. Let me try to give you an illustration. Um, many of you know that that logo. Um, I'm sure you're all in this uh, in this room far too healthy to eat uh, in KFC. Uh, nevertheless, uh, KFC was started, uh, founded by Colonel Harold, uh, sorry Harland, Harland David Sanders, uh, and he was the guy who invented the the special recipe of eleven herbs and spices to make the chicken finger-licking good, okay? That's he, he invented the... Um, uh, nevertheless, uh, although he invented the recipe, although he branded it very well, uh, nevertheless, all sorts of other restaurants started selling Kentucky Fried Chicken. And what, uh, back in the, the 70s and 80s, one of the slogans that Kentucky Fried Chicken um, uh, produced in order to fight back 
uh, was they had this slogan, Colonel Sanders is Kentucky Fried Chicken. Colonel Sanders is Kentucky Fried Chicken. Now, what do, you mean, what do they mean by that? Well, clearly they do not mean Colonel Sanders is a lump of chicken with 11 herbs and spices on it. He does, he doesn't, he's not, he is the chicken. Now, what, what, the, what that slogan means is such is Colonel Sanders' skill and his recipe is so delicious that you cannot have authentic, real Kentucky Fried Chicken without the Colonel and his recipe. You get the idea? True Kentucky Fried Chicken comes from the Colonel. And John is saying pretty much the same thing here, is that true love ultimately comes from God. He is the source of all love. He is the source of all love. Uh, now, John is not saying, it can't work in reverse. You can't just say, wherever you have love, you have God. No, that's the same thing as saying, the kernel is a lump of chicken. No, no. Uh, but what John is saying is that you cannot have authentic, true love without God because he is the source of love. Love is embedded into his nature and being. Uh, love is part of his character. Any notion, any notion of God that fails to appreciate that he is loving is a false notion of God. And so we've, maybe you've been talking to someone and they say, well, I, I imagine God as being aloof and distant. I imagine him as being uncaring and a stern disciplinarian. That's how I think of God. Uh, John would say, no, no, that is a false notion of God because you fail to appreciate that he is loving in all that he does. And that is who he is. And again, I suppose um, those of us who have read much of the New Testament will know that God is essentially loving because from all eternity, he has existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, there's great mystery here, and we don't have time to plumb the depths of it uh, this morning, but the, the Bible presents God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A Father who loves the Son and the Spirit. The Son who loves the Father and the Spirit. The Spirit who loves the Father and the Son. Love is part of who God is. He has always been loving. And therefore, any love that we experience and enjoy in this world is the result of the fact that we are made in God's image. We are made to give and receive love as God has give, given and received love from all uh, eternity. God is the source of all love. And so if we want to understand what, what it really looks like to give and receive love, which is something we all are interested in. Is that not right? We're all interested in that, how to be loved and how to love. Uh, we need to first look at God. And of course, the New Testament says that God is other things. Um, even in this book, we're told that God is light. He is holy. That's essential to him. Uh, we're told that God is spirit. We're told that God in Hebrews, God is a consuming fire committed to justice and purity. Uh, God is all of those things. But here we've been told that everything God does, 
Every way that he acts is fundamentally loving. He rules in a loving way. He saves in a loving way. He judges in a loving way. He is love in all that he does. And so the challenge then for us is to, John wants us to realize that if we know God, if we begin to understand who he is, that he is in himself essentially loving, uh, then John and, and the Holy Spirit has moved in. If we've come to know him and the Holy Spirit has begun to work in our hearts and minds, then some of his love should rub off on us. That's the logic here. We should begin to understand that being a Christian, being a Christian is not in essence a solitary activity. It's not just about you and Jesus or you and your Bible or you, Jesus, your Bible and an internet connection. No, no. Being a Christian, coming to know God, means being brought into a loving community. That's what it means to be a Christian because God is love. God is other-centered. God is warm and affectionate. God is always for the good of someone else. And so if we come to understand a God like that, then it should mean that we are more like that, warm, affectionate uh, for the good, uh, working for the good uh, of other people. I think we often measure Christian maturity uh, by how much you know, by how much you know. Oh, you've come to understand some big theological words. Oh, you must be a mature Christian. John would say, no, 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 you measure Christian maturity, more importantly, by how much you love by how much you love. Yeah, first then, the origin of love. If you know that God is love and loving in all that he does, then that should begin to rub off on you. Second, the demonstration of love, the demonstration of love. Verse 9, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. God's demonstration of love. Um, suppose, at this point, John anticipates someone asking the question, yeah, but how can you be sure that God is loving? How can you be sure? Is that not just wishful thinking? And John would say, no, no, no. You can be absolutely sure that God isn't a stern disciplinarian but as a warm, affectionate, loving God because he's demonstrated it. He's demonstrated it. Suppose I told you that I could uh, run for 15 miles without stopping then immediately jump on a bike and cycle for a further 50 miles without stopping. Now, some of you, I think, would rightly look me up and down and raise an eyebrow and think, oh, I'm not so sure, I'm not so sure. Uh, and the only way that I could make you sure, give you confidence that that statement is true, would be to pull on my trainers and do it. Isn't that right? I would need to demonstrate it for you to believe it. And John is saying that God has ultimately done exactly that. He has demonstrated the fact that he is loving in the most dramatic uh, and in the clearest possible way in the sending of his son to be our, to suffer and die for us. 
And John goes on to tell us that this love, this demonstration of love is remarkable, shocking for two reasons. The first reason that God's love is remarkable and shocking is because, number one, it's an undeserved love. It's an undeserved love. This is love not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Uh, You see, the reality is, as human beings, we love those we find attractive. That's how love works. We love those we find attractive. We We love those we find physically attractive, charming, and if they show any interest in us, then it's natural and easy almost to love them back. The shock here is that God looks at us and he sees us as unattractive and yet chooses to set his love on us anyway. That's the shock. That's not like, that's not like our love at all. In fact, uh, if you read through the Bible, one of the common pictures that the Bible uses to describe our natural human attitude to God is that of a, an ungrateful child. An ungrateful child. Um, we are all a bit left to our own devices. We are all a bit like that little boy or girl that's born into a, a loving family with wonderful parents who are attentive and generous and kind, who wisely set limits uh, and want to nourish and encourage the wonderful parents, and yet the child grows up to be obnoxious and ungrateful. A child that grows up to say, uh, I don't want to spend time with you. I don't want to listen to what you have to say. I don't want to obey your rules. Uh, in fact, I want you out of my life entirely. Oh, but I like your stuff. I like your stuff. So keep giving me presents and keep giving my family presents. Uh, in fact, in fact, it would almost be better if you died uh, and I could get access as an inheritance to all your stuff. That would be the ideal scenario. To love the gifts, but to despise the giver. Uh, and that's how we are all, that's what we are all like uh, as human beings. Naturally speaking, that's our attitude to God. So when God looks at us, he does not see Andrex puppies. Couldn't think of anything cuter than an Andrex puppy right now. But uh, Andrex puppies really, oh, they're so cute. They're so adorable. I want one. Okay, God does not look at us and, and see us like that. God sees us for who we really are. Those who have despised, rejected, ignored him in his world, despite all that he's given us, and those who have mistreated our brothers and sisters along the way. We have mistreated, abused, um, um, dismissed, been abusive to those whom God loves. God does not look at us and say, oh, they are adorable. Uh, In fact, God looks at us and sees us who we really are, and yet, and yet loves us anyway, and yet loves us anyway. Which leads us to the second 
remarkable reason why uh, God's love is utterly shocking. Uh, because God's love is not shocking just because it's undeserved love. It's shocking because it's sacrificial love. Sacrificial love. Look again in verses 10 and 11. This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That little phrase uh, in the NIV, atoning sacrifice, is actually one word. Uh, in the original. Um, And some of the modern translations, the latest version of the NIV and um, the the ESV and some of these later modern English translations translate it using the not very common word, but actually more helpful word, propitiation. Now, look, I understand that's not a word we use in like everyday language uh, in the shop. Um, Propitiation really essentially means to appease someone's anger. To tur- or to turn away someone's anger from us. Uh, we might not be familiar with the words, but we're certainly familiar with the idea, I think. Uh, maybe I, I assume I'm not the only husband that uh, is thoughtless and uh, doesn't do everything he says he'll do uh, and makes his spouse angry uh, and sometimes needs to buy a gift and say sorry, stop off for a bunch of flowers uh, and say sorry to hopefully propitiate his wife, turn away some of that anger. Yeah? Well, I think we're familiar with the idea, even if we're not familiar with the word, but it does raise the problem now. Well, hold on a minute, Lee. You've been telling me God is love and he loves us, and now you're saying he's angry with us with an anger that needs to be turned away. Look, make up your mind. He's either loving or he's angry. But of course, those two things are not opposites, are they? I think it's easy to think that they're opposites, but they're not opposites. Love and anger. Think on a, a, a spouse who discovers that his wife has been cheating on him and having an affair. How would you expect him to react? A loving, devoted husband. And he's discovered that his wife's having an affair. Or a a wife who discovers her husband's having an affair. How would you expect that spouse to react? Well, certainly you wouldn't expect them to say, Oh, well, these things happen. In fact, if they reacted like that and were not angry, upset, hurt, outraged in any way, that would actually reveal they didn't love their spouse at all. Because you see, real love cares how you behave. Real love takes you seriously. Real love gets angry when it's betrayed, doesn't it? Love and anger go together. Love and anger go together. And in the same way, God loves us and therefore to be rejected and ignored makes him angry, makes him angry. And so what we desperately need as human beings, what we desperately need, more important than anything else, is we need God's anger turned away from us. And God wonderfully, amazingly, has provided a way for that to happen through the sending of his son, through the sending of his son. 
Now, again, we need to be really careful here when we talk about God's anger. God's anger is not like my anger, is not like your anger. Our anger is often out of proportion. We fly off the handle. We lose control. Our anger is often... um, uh, it's often selfish, it is often petty, uh, it is often self-seeking, uh, upset when we don't get our own way. But God's anger is not like that. God's anger is not like that. God's anger is his just, settled, consistent hostility to all that is evil. Let me say that again. God's anger is his just, settled, consistent hostility to all that is evil. And so it is right that God is angry with us. Um, And God is angry at the right things and expresses it in the right way to the right degree. God's anger is perfect. And so to turn away God's anger is going to require something much more costly than a bunch of flowers and an apology. And that's why God provided this wonderful way for his anger, his righteous anger to be turned away by the sending of his son. The Lord Jesus came and he lived the life that we should have lived. And he went all the way to the cross. God, in the person of his son, took his anger away from us by bearing the full force of his righteous anger in the Lord Jesus on the cross in our place. He absorbed God's anger so that we might experience his welcome and blessing. Uh, I came across this story this week, um, the story of Robert Cook. Uh, Robert Cook was a parachute instructor in St. Louis. uh, And back in 2006, uh, he was leading uh, a group uh, up on a parachute jump, they, there was him and six other individuals on an airplane, a little airplane, taken off from the airport uh, in St. Louis. Uh, and as the plane, the little plane took off, um, for some unknown reason, uh, it clipped a power line uh, and the engine of that little plane caught fire and the little plane took a nosedive immediately. It didn't reach uh, it wasn't high enough, didn't reach the, the right altitude for, the, for parachutes to be any use. Um, and so what, in the spur of the moment, what that young man did, Robert Cook, was he grabbed the woman standing next to him called Kimberly Deer. Uh, and he was about to do a tandem jump with her anyway. So what he, they had all the right gear on, and so he simply clipped his harness to her harness. And he put his arms around her, and he said, hold on tight plane is going down. You need to hold on to me. She held on tight to him. And what he did was he managed to, on purpose, twist his body around so that when the plane crashed, he took the full brunt of the impact so that she might have a chance. He died on impact instantly. But amazingly, amazingly, although all the others on that flight were killed, she survived, survived couple of broken bones, a couple of bruises, but was able to walk away. He took the full force of the impact in order that she might walk away and have a life. 
That's just a tiny, tiny reflection of what the Lord Jesus has done for us. He didn't save us from a plane crash. He saved us from a collision course with God. He saved us from eternally facing God's anger by taking that anger for us on the cross that we might experience God's smile and his blessing. That is the ultimate demonstration of love, isn't it? To give your life for the good uh, of someone else. And so John has been arguing all the way through this little letter that Jesus and his love, his sacrificial love that was demonstrated in practice should be the model for the way we love one another. Uh, Just glance down to verse 11 again. Dear friends, since God so loved us, since he loved us like that, so we also ought to love one another. He's already said it back in chapter 3, verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. You see, true love is more than words. True love is more than words. To be part of a loving community is not just to come along to a church gathering on a Sunday and be polite to the person sitting next to you or to share some small chat uh, over a cup of coffee. That, That is not love. Love is demonstrated in practical, sacrificial service. That's what love looks like. Um, And as a church family, that's why we uh, encourage people to be involved in the life groups of this church, where we get to spend real time with each other. We get to learn what's going on in one another's lives and learn how we can love and serve one another to learn how to love. Because love is demonstrated. It's put into practice. What does it look like? It looks like praying for each other. Uh, It looks like uh, bringing a meal when uh, you know another is under pressure. Uh, It looks like showing hospitality. It looks like visiting those who can't get out. It means bringing people into our homes. Practical service demonstrated in action because love involves sacrificial service. The origin of love, God is love. It's his character to be loving. And that should rub off on us. Uh, God has demonstrated his love in practical, sacrificial service of us uh, by sending his son to suffer and die for us. And we should follow his example. Which leads us thirdly then to the completion of love. The completion of love. I appreciate that's that's a weird, perhaps a weird heading, a weird title. Uh, But John does use that language twice uh, in the remaining verses. In verse uh, 12, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. And then again in verse 17, this is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day uh, of judgment. The word word complete, it, it is strange to talk about God's love being made complete Remember, we're talking about God's love, a love that has its source and origin in God that was demonstrated in the work of the Lord Jesus. To think that anything is inadequate or incomplete about that love is surely, surely wrong, is it not? 
But the word here for complete, sometimes translated unhelpfully in some of your other English versions as perfect or perfected, uh, it's really the idea of fulfilling its purpose or accomplishing its goal. That's the idea. You see, God never intended for you to receive his love and for that to stop with you. That's never God's intention. God's intention is for you to receive his love and then for that to overflow by you showing that same love towards other people. That's always been God's plan and intention. And so when we keep love and hoard love ourselves and don't show it to others, then God's love is incomplete. It's incomplete. It's supposed to be cashed out in practical, loving service, showing hospitality, generosity, practical care, patience, forgiveness uh, to others around us. And as we show love like that, as we put it into practice, as we complete God's intention for his love in our lives, two things will happen. Two things will happen. Number one, the world will see Number two, we will be sure. Okay, the world will see and we will be sure. First, the world will see. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, um, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Now, John is here clearly echoing a verse that he has written um, perhaps a couple of years before when he wrote his gospel. I put the words on the screen. John chapter 1 verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only who's at the Father's side has made him known. Christians fully acknowledge that it's really quite difficult to believe in a God you cannot see with your eyes. We're happy to hold our hands up and say, yeah, that is odd and hard. But, but, John says, the invisible God made himself visible, number one, in the life of the Lord Jesus. The life of the Lord Jesus, God made himself visible in his life teaching miracles, death and resurrection. We, are, we can see what God is really like. But again, the shocking thing that John is saying in this, uh, in this verse, even more shocking again, it's that as we love each other, with practical, sacrificial love, people will get a glimpse. Those who don't know Jesus, friends and family, neighbors, classmates and colleagues who don't yet know Jesus, if they see the way that we practically love people in our church family who are not like us, there's something supernatural there we are actually making the message of the Lord Jesus believable and beautiful as we love each other. As we love one another like this, the world will see um, something of the reality and the love and life of God in us. The world will see, second, very quickly, we will be sure, we will be sure. The emphasis of this whole letter is not primarily the impact the love will have on other people outside the church, but the impact that his love will have on us and the impact loving other people will have on us. John, remember, is wanting to reassure unsettled believers 
And John is saying that as we love one another and commit to serve, even when it's difficult, commit to be patient, commit to care for practically, commit to invest our time and our treasure and our talent in order to help and serve other people, when we do that, John is saying, we display the family likeness. Not only, John says, uh, in verses 13 and 14, um, the Spirit is working in us. When the Spirit works in you, not only will you believe the truth, that's true and that's right and that's the, the correct starting point, but it never stops there. The Spirit of God, when working in one of God's children, one of his adopted children, will change your heart and enable you and motivate you to love and serve other people. And as you begin to feel uh, affection, commitment, compassion towards those around you, you should be wonderfully reassured that God is really working in you uh, and that you can be confident for the final day. Now, as you look around this room, uh, we will never do this perfectly. We will always be irritated by one another. We will always potentially offend one another. That's going to happen. But nevertheless, as we feel affection and commitment and compassion grow for the people in this church family, that is a sure sign, John says, that you really have the Holy Spirit, that you're really one of God's children, and that you can be absolutely confident uh, of his welcome uh, and his pleasure uh, on the final day. Uh, I started telling you about uh, Elsa. Elsa was changed. She was changed by the love, consistent love and practical care of her, pa- her, her adoptive parents. I think we've all heard stories of um, men who are transformed by the love of a good woman. How much more than either of those should we be changed by the love of God, by the love of God. He loves you. He loves you. And he has demonstrated that love for you in the most profound, dramatic way by sending his one and only son to suffer and die for you when you didn't deserve it and could never earn it. And when you get that, when you begin to understand that, then it begins to transform and change you. And as it does, you will inevitably love and serve those around you. Let me pray.